sorry, Cassie. We're all sorry, Cassie. Trust me, Carrie. You can trust me. Trust me, Carrie. You can trust me. Trust me, Carrie. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Fear of God. Um, this is a very special episode of The Fear of God, and I'm going to get to why that is in just a couple minutes. Um, this is Nathan Rouse, uh, one of your faithful co-hosts. Typically with me would be Reed Lackey, but he said, he, strangely, for a 36-year-old guy, he got invited to a prom which blows my mind a little bit, you know. I mean, I'm happy for him. I'm happy. A little weird, but I'm happy for him. You know, it's good to be invited to things, unless it's the invitation. It's a dinner party that goes sideways. But anyway, so he got invited. Pro- Reed, I'm just, you're back, buddy. You made it out. You look, you look, a little, you look a little worse for wear, though. That must have been quite a prom. By the skin of my teeth. Boy, I have heard of some uh, outrageous parties, but this one, uh, this one took the cake. Yes. <laughs> so yes. to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you made it out of that 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 terrible party alive. We're, we'll get to that. So if, you, if you've read the byline on this episode, you know where this episode's going. But uh, we're going to jump past that. We're going to do a little bookkeeping. Hey, Reed, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good, man. It's good to talk to you again. Listeners won't know this, but it's actually been a while since we've recorded. To them, there have been no breaks. But for us, it's been a while. So it's good to be sort of back in the saddle, as it were. Yes, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. I did want to piggyback. So... <clears throat> we recorded our 2016 in review episode about a month before 2016 ended. And I think, I think you didn't know I was going to do this. I think you would totally be in agreement with going this route though. Um, in that episode, we referenced favorite celebrities, actors, storytellers who had passed in the year 2016, not knowing that with a few mere days remaining that, that, that we would lose a few more. And, Interestingly enough, on this episode, um, you know, given our episode's subject matter, taken from us with just a few days remaining in 2016 was the now late, uh, but always great Carrie Fisher. Was very sad to see that, man. I, although I must admit, I, I am, I was a cr- incredibly ignorant to the robustness of her career outside of the Star Wars world. I mean, I knew she'd, written some stuff. I knew that, you know, she'd been here and there. I know she was in an episode of 30 rock. I watched that when it was on. So of course I was aware of her. Um, but I, it was to my mild shame. Uh, I had a lot of ignorance as to just how impactful her work was beyond the star Wars world. And, and certainly to give credit here to Debbie Reynolds, her mother, because such a terribly tragic, we're, st- 
we're starting on a really upbeat note right now. I know. <laughs> Talking about I these, know. <laughs> these really sad passings. Um, but, but, you know, it felt important given, even though it will be a month plus into 2017 when this airs, it felt important to make sure we, we hit on that one. Yeah. And yeah, it, it was really, really sad given, you know, I, th- I think, uh, the last sort of mention of the Star Wars world that we talked about, I hadn't yet seen Rogue, Rogue One. It was actually as my wife and I were about to go into the screening of Rogue One that we were going to see that we heard the news of her oh, man. Uh, having a heart attack. And so it was, it, yeah, it was, it was really, really sad. And then, of course, just uh, like you mentioned, her, her mother passing just one day later, um, felt so bad for that family. And it, it, I can understand that that would have been just, just a devastating season for both of them. They were both very, very beloved. Um, I admittedly, like you had mentioned, I, I was not a full, complete, you know, avid fan of hers beyond the Star Wars world. I had seen a few other things that, that she was in and had always considered her a, a really amazing talent in her own regard. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was very, very sad. Switching gears from the sad stuff, listeners, like you just said, won't know that it's been about a month since we've recorded. We intentionally did that because, um, I, my wife and I welcomed our third child into the world. Congratulations. Thank you, man. At the very end of 2016, which is why right at this second, I've got spit up on my shoulder. Um, (laughs) I don't have enough sleep for an adult man. I am in a laundry room right now recording because it was important (laughs) to me to do as little as I could to disrupt uh, the home as, as it tries to let her settle in for a night's, well, I say a night's by a night. I mean like two hours worth of sleep, right, but I do have right. my, not your father's root beer at my side. So I'm good to go, uh, ready, for, <laughs> ready for a good conversation for you. Hey, I, I, we've got a lot to cover on this episode and it's going to be a fun one. Um, but I've got to have an idea for you, Reed. This is something you and I haven't pre-briefed quite as much as we used to, which I like it keeps each other on our toes. Um, I agree. But I had this fun idea. So, um, it was inspired by current events, actually, but it's, uh, it's a podcast idea. So, you know, we, we are hosting right now and have hosted for 25 episodes, um, The Fear of God. And we, we jokingly said a couple of weeks ago. So, so where I'm going with this is I think, Reed, that we should start a podcast network. So we've got the fear oh. of God. We've got the fear of God. I, I say we take the horror out of it and just you and I, we just cover romantic comedies. <laughs> you know, we, we do our format and we discuss such treasures as love. Actually, um, we talk about return to me and David Duchovny's bad crying. Oh, you know, boy. We, we just do. And we call it the love of we call it the love of God. So <laughs> you've got you've got the fear of God. <laughs> you didn't have the love of God, you know, which oh, again no. is, so you're covering the horror movies and faith, oh, you're covering man. romantic movies and faith. And I feel like with our 15 years of hetero life, mentsy life mateness, you know, that we're, <laughs> we're just well equipped to really do a lot of good work in the world of romantic comedies and faith. My third, I, uh, I hear the influence of your wife in this somewhere. Uh, no, 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 no. This is all me. Um, <laughs> because the third one came to me tonight. Um, oh so we're, we are recording, uh, on January 27th, 2017, the night of, uh, let's just say a bit of heightened stuff in our world right now. And, yeah. and listeners may not believe this, but I actually do restrain myself a decent amount in our recordings of, of, how impassioned I, I can get on some of our 
He does. The uh, the topmost political uh, strata in our country right now. So where I'm going with this is after the fear of God, after the love of God, I think we do a third podcast that is just us not caring called the wrath of God, where, <laughs> where we just let loose. And, oh, you know, we, we awesome. may have to ask forgiveness after each recording and after each one airs, but it's about, just, it's about X. Ex- <laughs> See, this is, I'm feeding the whole thing. It all works. It's about exorcising that, that passion. So what, what do you think, Reed? The, the, the of God podcast network. Hosted by Reed and Nathan. I'm on board. I'm completely on board. And now, you know, I'm like, now I'm even trying to think about how do we, uh, how do we incorporate the peace of God? There you, know? you go. And, you know, there you go. And, uh, it's just and, uh, all that podcast is. It's just dead air. Yes. It's just quiet. Yes. It's just still. Yeah. You just turn it on. We, gr- <laughs> we greet you. We greet. We say, Hey guys. Hey, it's Reed and Nathan. And then we just let it record for 30 minutes. And then it just goes. And then that's all it is. And then at the the end of 30 minutes, we say, see you next time. Wow. That's the peace of God. With some light John Tesh tones, right? (laughs) You know, flavoring. Well, John Tesh, John Tesh is a Christian, right? I mean, you know. Oh, that's true. See, there you go. It all, it all works. We got to have John, that big, have you ever, speaking of John Tesh, who knew this is where we were going. Have you ever seen any of his, um, any of his appearances on Conan? O'Brien? No. Uh, oh, they're no. hysterical. They're oh, I hysterical. should look them up. He always, well, I'll, I'll steal the punchline, though it's still worth watching. He'll feature John Tesh and, <laughs> and Conan, you know, some of these guys like John Tesh or Yanni or, or Kenny G, they're, they're always doing these like DVDs of big concerts, you know, Yanni at the Acropolis or whatever. Well, right. John Tesh will come on and Conan will be like, oh, so you're here plugging your new concert movie or whatever. And without fail, this is what happens when John Tesh comes on Conan. Paul Rudd is similar. It's hysterical. Conan will say, okay, let's show a clip of your new DVD. And, uh, and it will cut to a scene from the Adams family of Lurch playing the piano. <laughs> it is the running gag between the two of them that every time That's he is awesome. on, they feature a clip of John Tesh's concert and it's Lurch playing the piano. It is. That's hysterical. It is. That's hysterical. really hysterical. So yeah, we, we've already talked about a brand new podcast series. And John Tesh. So, what do wow. you have, Reed? Oh, I, you know what? I'm excited for all of it. I'm excited for whatever tw- <laughs> forever, forever 2017 holds. Then, you know, I'm on I'm on board. I guess buckle up, as it were. I have a couple of uh, I, I have a couple of other little announcements to to go into. But before we do, I did want to mention you had mentioned uh, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, as well. Wanted to mention another personal one for me. Um, that is, that is, uh, more recent to, to the recording of this episode, just in the last couple of days, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, TV icon passed away. And, um, I personally grew up watching the Dick Van Dyke show, obviously not in its live run. I'm not that old, but it was, uh, it was a, a real special show for me to watch on Nick at Night when I was a kid. And I could safely say that Laura Petrie on the Dick Van Dyke show was my first crush as a child. So it was, uh, it was really sad for me to see her go. I still regularly watch the Dick Van Dyke show. And, um, so it was saddened to see her go. Hopefully 2017 does not hold as many celebrity deaths as 2016 oh. did. Oh, I'm sure uh, it will. I'm sure it will rival it. It's just going to happen. Yeah. It's just the kind of where we're in right now. You know, what's fun about Rob and Laura Petrie or Petrie is I actually am very unfamiliar with the Mary Tyler Moore show, but, uh, there's an X-Files episode where Scully and Mulder go undercover 
in a neighborhood to uncover this. I mean, the whole theme of the episode is like the dark underbelly of suburban society. Of, right. um, and they go undercover into this neighborhood as the characters' names are Rob and Laura Petrie. And it's just oh, a, it's, wow. it's a, it's, it is a whimsical episode. So it's meant to be kind of a send up of that kind of feel. Oh, that's nice. That's really yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was obviously a very big fan and I'm sure we won't be able to mention every single celebrity passing as it comes, but that one felt so, so close and so personal that I had to touch on it. There's one more, but we'll, we'll save that for reasons that'll be clear a little bit later. I do have a couple of uh, quick sort of announcement things and then we have something a little fun. Uh, listeners, uh, we're, you know, if, if you're tuning in and you're like, wow, when are they ever going to get to their movie and to their, It'll be to a their while. new episode format? Um, I would say, you know, just bear with us for another, easy, you know, 10 to 15 minutes here. A couple of quick things is uh, you may have seen some written reviews uh, that are showing up on the Facebook page specifically and on the More Than One Lesson site that under the Fear of God banner. Um, just wanted to make, your, uh, make you aware of that. There's probably going to be a number of things that are going to hit our radar um, that we wouldn't necessarily do an episode about, but may have some thoughts or comments about. So there'll be a few uh, occasional written reviews of recent or even older films that are going to hit the feed there. And also, uh, for those of you uh, letterboxed social media fans, Fear of God actually now has an official Letterboxd page. Um, we're going to link to it on the Facebook, and uh, it won't necessarily feature like a diary of films we're watching or anything, but it'll be the occasional opportunity for us to toss up some best of lists or some listener voted lists. Which brings me to something that I'm looking very forward to revealing to you guys. We asked you not that long ago, um, actually just a couple of weeks ago, to submit to us your favorite horror films of 2016. And uh, so we are very, very glad to deliver to you right now. We're going to rattle off the list of the top 10 uh, listener-voted favorite horror films of 2016. This list will also be on our Fear of God Letterboxd page. But we're just going to, as briefly as we can, just sort of rattle off this list because I thought it was a very exciting list. And, and uh, listeners, you may find this interesting as well. So, so here it is. Nathan, are you ready to dive into this? I am. I'm excited. So real quick, Let's, before we get to them, have, have you seen all of these? I have seen all but one of them. Okay. What number? Yeah. What, what number? It, it's actually number 10. So I'm oh, okay. it cool, in a second. Cool, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, you go right so, ahead. All right. So, we don't want um, to leave them waiting. <laughs> so number 10, listener voted favorite horror 2016. Number 10, we had a tie. It was a dead tie between two films. And those two films are Hush and... Ouija Origin of Evil. Ouija Origin of Evil is the one on this list that I have not seen. So, ironically, both of those films were by the same director, Mike Flanagan, which is why I thought it was kind of appropriate that they, that they both sort of landed in the same place. Uh, Mike Flanagan made three horror films this year, and all of them, from my understanding, are pretty good, uh, or at least pretty well received. I have seen Hush, and it is excellent. Uh, I even mentioned it on an earlier episode of Fear of God. Uh, it's available on Netflix, and uh, you should, listeners, you should should check it out. It's really, really good. Oh, Hush. Okay, so I've actually <laughs> only seen four of the movies on this list, and this is not one of them, but number nine, featuring Miss um, Blake Lively and her friend the shark, uh, is The Shallows. So that was number yes. nine from our list. I liked that movie a lot, and I was happy to see it make it on the list. It's appropriate if it's going to make it on a list that it makes it about nine or ten, but uh, I was happy to see it make the list because I enjoyed it a lot. But you, well, you enjoyed it for its depth, though, right? Yes, it was cool. a surprisingly deep movie. <laughs> Go ahead with number eight. Waka waka. <laughs> um, okay, so number eight, um, a film that I only have recently saw, was The Neon Demon. 
And uh, that was a film that was really uh, unsettling in a number of ways. And to be honest, of these of these that I've seen, uh, it's my least favorite on the list. But it's it was a very provocative film. Um, it's got some interesting things that it's sort of exploring and definitely a deft visual style. But number eight, The Neon Demon. Number seven was the harrowing, frightening, under the shadow. Oh, my gosh. This movie... Oh, the, I, now have you seen this movie? No, not at all. I was just trying oh. to. I was just trying to add some gravity to my delivery. Yeah, to something. Uh, you should see Under the Shadow. It's available on Netflix as of this recording. Maybe even as of this broadcast. Under the Shadow is really interesting. It's an Iranian film, um, and it is a horror film that is also set amidst the turbulence of war in Tehran. And it is. It, it's. It's fascinating, and it's extremely well executed. Uh, deeply moving in places. I was very surprised by it. Under, under the shadow. It's, it, it, like I said, maybe even as of this broadcast, it might still be on Netflix. Please check it out if you can find it. It's worth seeing. Now, I have seen this next one of yours. Um, all right. So this one, uh, landing in at number six, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about this and deservedly so. I was happy to find the invitation landed at number six. You know, in, in hindsight, after we did our top movies of 16 and, we had not recorded our invitation episode yet. I, I love that movie. Like that, that would, it's wonderful. That would easily be in kind of my top five for the year of 2016. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I don't know if it's top five for me, but it's unquestionably top 10. I haven't, I have to look back at my list, but it, it's such a wonderful movie. I loved it so much. Um, number five, which I have is, is a, is a lovely movie about a group of theater peers who hang out before their play. It's called green room. And, <laughs> and, the horror of the play of the movie is about just they don't know what the play is. It's like the actor's nightmare, right? That's that, the that's the plot. You know what? We'll just go with that. Let's just you know, listen, listeners. Uh, if you've seen that movie, then uh, then yeah, you, you you know how accurate or not Nathan is. Um, so, <laughs> um, oh, that's funny. In all honesty, though, I really did. I really did love that movie, and one of the things I loved about it. It's sad to see to think about this movie uh, in light of Anton Yelchin's passing, but. Um, one thing that I sincerely did love about this film is seeing Patrick Stewart be a violent, brutal neo-Nazi. It's it's interesting. Um, so it's kind of like yeah. Captain Picard is assaulting or terrorizing. What's oh, the- Chekhov? Yes, yes. Yeah, Captain Picard's uh, assaulting Chekhov? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. sure. Exactly. Well, That's, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Green Room, number five. <laughs> make it so make um, it so make it so uh, engage check off um okay number four right. i did i did see this one the conjuring two number three go read uh actually you, you you took two in a row so that's all right but oh, uh crap yeah also but that's can't okay read. no that's all right so but no the conjuring two number four i was very happy we spent a lot of time talking about this one uh, go back and hear our episode about it. And yeah, I think it deserves a place at number four. I'm going to take the next two. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and, and uh, so, uh, but number three, I, I was not surprised to find this on the list. Um, I didn't have as strong a response to it as our, as clearly all of our listeners did. But number three, don't breathe. Is that the turkey baster movie? That is the turkey baster movie. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen yeah. that. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I saw it and, and it's, oh, you did? it's very, yeah, it's very good. Mm. Um, I didn't see it in the theater, but, um, it's been out for a little while did now. Did it make you I, want yeah, some turkey? Uh, it did not make me want turkey <laughs> at all in the slightest or, or much of anything else. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but no, I mean, I, I understand why it's number three. It's, it's a very well executed film. Yeah. It's, it, it flips the home invasion thriller on its head in some really clever ways. So yeah, it deserves to be up there. 
So number two came to me as no surprise, except that I thought it might make number one. Uh, number two, uh, as we've just recently discoursed about extensively, is The Witch. You got you to love it. I have seen that one. I do love it. I can accurately summarize the plot, although the ending still leaves a little bit of ambiguity, though not as much. Number one on the list of top ten listener-selected horror movies of 2016 is Batman vs. Superman. That was a surprise. I hate you. I did. <laughs> I hate you. Is, of all the of all the gimmicks that have made their way into our into our show, I adore them all except for this one. This one makes me want to gargle razor blades. I did not see that coming. I mean, you know, people liked it though. Um, no, but in, <laughs> in, in sincerity, um, number one on the list was, and this was a lot of fun. I was just being funny there. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. That was very exciting to me. I, I did not. Oh, yeah. You know, you and I talked about this over the phone. We did pre-brief this, that what's fun to me about that, <clears throat> and I think this will make sense to you. You know, that experience where you watch a movie early, you know, it's like maybe it's opening weekend. You've got a little interest in it, but you're not sure. You don't care what, what, other, what the buzz is or whatever the hype might be around it. And you right, happen to go right. catch it and you're like, I really like that movie. You, you have that fresh, oh, yeah. raw experience. And then all of a sudden everybody else likes it too. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I've got good thoughts and ideas. So it's, <laughs> it was pretty cool to see Cloverfield Lane make the top of that list. Yeah. And you, you're so right about the fact that like I saw it so early in the year, I never would have expected that it would remain so high in my list, even, you know, when we get into January of 2000, of the next year. But yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where it's just, it, it, it's a real gem of a movie. And, and I, I think that it deserves every inch of the praise that has been heaped upon it and all of the attention that's been given to it. I, I really, I really enjoy 10 Cloverfield Lane and I'm happy that it is. If anything was going to beat the witch, because maybe witch deserves to be number one, but if anything was going to beat it, the one thing that I would not balk at for a second is 10 Cloverfield Lane. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. And listeners, it's your favorite horror film of 2016. So we thought that list was interesting, and we thank you, everybody who participated in voting on that. Again, that list is going to be available on the Fear of God letterboxed page, which we'll have a link to. But... We're not here to talk about all of those wonderful films. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, that was a good podcast, Reed. See you next time. Bye. Bye. No, really. <laughs> we're, we're just now getting to the good stuff. So you may have noticed when you saw this in your feed, however it is you consume podcasts, um, that there's a unique title here. So um, when Reed and I were first discussing the Fear of God podcast, uh, which clearly is going to have multiple spinoffs and have its own you know, shared universe of podcasts. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I thought would be fun is what is called, uh, or what, as you can see, if you read the title of this called the quarterly King. So I need to give my man Reed Lackey props for my exposure, re-exposure to Stephen King listeners who've Aww. been with us, listeners who've been with us for a while, um, would remember in a pilot episode that I read the book pet cemetery when I was a wee lad and it scared the the stuffing out of me. And um, uh, I would use a different word if this were a Wrath of God episode. But <clears throat> scared, <laughs> scared, scared me really bad as a wee sixth grader, such that I put down his work for about, I don't know, 12, 15 years, something like that. And I, I clearly recall, this is the year 2006, that I wanted something. I was reading all this highfalutin theology gobbledygook. And I, <laughs> I remember saying to you, Reed, I said, man, I just want something like, I want something that I don't have to chew so hard on. Like, can you give me some Stephen King recommendations? 
And presumably this would have been around the time of this book's publication, but you recommended Cell. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is still, I would still consider one of my top of his favorite works of his. So the point I'm simply trying to make here is, you know, that was 11 years ago at this point. Um, I've read pretty much everything that has been published current since then and have gone back to much of his work prior to that. You are an avowed fan. It just felt appropriate that, and I'm going to let you cover your Stephen King ground too, but it just, in terms of explaining this episode, um, you know, in comic book world, there's always a new number one. You're looking at this episode title and you're like, what? It's a new number one. Yay. That means it's a collector's edition. This episode is going to be more valuable than the others, but <laughs> um, it just felt appropriate as two friends of faith talking about horror stuff. For me, definitely. You would probably have a few more broad, more varied touch points but Stephen King is the net holding it all together um, in terms of my affection for this genre. You know, again, have read most of his work at this point, probably 75 plus percent. And it just felt important and appropriate that when we started this show that we benchmark important episodes. So the reason this is called Quarterly King is because every 25 episodes we are going to do an episode featuring a piece of work by Stephen King. Um, specifically today, we're talking primarily about the movie, Carrie. Uh, Reed's going to expound a bit on the book, which I've read too, but he's read more recently. So that's a long-winded way of addressing what this episode is, other than just a bunch of tomfoolery. Um, but that's pretty <laughs> Um So yeah, Reed, that, that's, that's my peek behind the curtain in terms of how I came to King. Feel free to you know, chat and say whatever you want in terms of what in, what made you glom onto this idea in terms of the Quarterly King stuff? Well, I, I really wanted to, I, I think it's interesting because Stephen King, he, for me personally, and I think in the, the horror world, is pretty special. His name is so synonymous with the genre, and he has done so much in the last 40, 40 years or so to to expand the genre, to legitimize the genre. So many of our peers have grown up reading his material. Um, he's just special to a great many of us who are horror fans. Um, he is, I mean, literally, I'm not making a pun here. He is the king. Like, he, you know, Elvis is the king of rock and roll and Michael Jackson's the king of pop. And like, honestly, uh, dis you know, despite the, you know, the legacy of his last name, Stephen King is the king of horror in terms of he has had just this, this abundance of brilliant stories and so many of them have meant so much to me over so many, so many years. I read my first one of his when I was in sixth grade, which is relatively late in the game. And the very first book. Now I had seen several of now, his movies. Now pause there. You okay. said that's relatively late in the game. I mean, that's late in the game for you who had watched for me, <laughs> Freddy Krueger in the womb, you know, Sixth that's, grade that's Stephen good. King is not really late in the game for most people, but that I, is a good I, point. I, I digress. No, that is a very good point. But yeah, it, it feels later than it should for me to have only been acquainted with him when I was when I was in sixth grade. But the the first book that I read of his was uh, a more kid friendly book called The Eyes of the Dragon, um, which is loosely connected to the Dark Tower world. Fans of Stephen King are going to hear that. Um, but then I enjoyed that book so much that I went on to read as much as I could. I have read every single major published work. There's plenty of 
short stories and hard to find materials uh, that I, you know, may have to give over my fan credentials because I haven't read everything, but every major published work of his I've read. So like finders keepers? Except for, yeah, that's what I was about to caveat, (laughs) except for the rest of the Hodges trilogy. That's the, that's the only gap in my, uh, you gifted me end of watch. I was just giving you a hard time because I knew I'd give to do that. Yeah. You gifted me end of watch. And, um, and so that is, that is soon to be on my, on my to be read list, I'm going to reread Mr. Mercedes, finish reading Finders Keepers, and then uh, read End of Watch. So, but other than those, uh, I've read everything, and I've read this book that uh, that we're this story that we're covering today uh, multiple times. Do do this. We're, I mean, we're we're going long. It's all good. We're, we're all friends here. Uh, sure. Give me. I want to do this too. Just three. What are three favorite works? Okay. Um. So I'll give you one that I consider to be objectively the best. I do think that in terms of what is his masterpiece, it's duking it out between two. And I'm, tell, uh, I'm asking for your favorite. Oh, you're asking for my favorite. Okay. Yeah. Well, three, um, three of your favorites. I'm not. I'm not asking right. you to critically assess the work. No problem. All right. So number one with a bullet is the stand. I, I love the stand. I have adored that story in any form, including the uh, questionable quality 1990 something miniseries, but. The book is sprawling and epic and beautiful and horrific and wonderful. And uh, number one with a bullet for me is The Stand. You want me to give you my other two or do you want to go back and forth? We can go back and forth. This is fun because right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue out of yours by just saying, hey, Lackey, can you dig your man? Um, <laughs> you know, nice. I, I do have three and I've already mentioned one, uh, not in this context, but I'll go ahead and say it. I actually really love Cell. Um, you know, I'm sure the most ardent of King purists would not put it in a top five and I'm not necessarily suggesting that we're just talking about favorite works. It was a reentry point for me in a way that bless his heart. Sometimes King struggles with his endings. I actually love the ending of cell because it is ambiguous, which is actually going to be relevant to another one of my favorites on this list. But, um, I just really enjoy cell. It, it plays itself. Now I haven't seen the movie, which got abysmally received, um, so yeah. not even speaking to that, but the book, you know, it plays itself as a zombie tale, then suddenly becomes telekinetic zombies, telepathic zombies, which whatever, you know, go f- good <laughs> for you. Good for you, Uncle Stevie. Um, and then ends on this very kind of cliffhangery open ended, but, but hopeful note. So I, I really like Cell a lot. Yeah. Um, number two for me. So I'm, I'm going to stick with ones that are more personally resonant with yeah. me because man, the, uh, honestly, the Stephen King best of list may also depend on what I've read recently, sure. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think all time I, I responded so heavily to desperation. That, yeah, um, that's a good word. Desperation is a, is, is frightening and it's dealing with some, you know, uh, uh, might even, be a uh, a soon quarterly, quarterly king, king for yeah. us because of its uh its its faith themes that it's dealing with but yeah desperation is a is a really heavy hitter for me it was uh sort of sort of nestled into this sort of b list category for him but i i responded so strongly to it i i love desperation well giving giving each other credit where where it's all due you actually gifted me with that book i don't know if you recall that oh. Uh, I, I, I couldn't remember which King I had given you. I know I've given you several King books over the years, but well, uh, what's fun about desperation and spoiler alert for possible readers is that book more than almost any of his, the level of swerve that happens within about what? 30 pages, you know, like, Oh yeah. You think, you think, Oh, here's our characters. And then all of a sudden, Oh, these are not our characters. (laughs) These are Um, clearly will not be our characters. Right. 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 (laughs) Um, 
number two for me, uh, a, a little out of left field here, but in the collection, everything's eventual is a short story that this one and my number one will always make a best of list sell. It, it may revolve around others just depending on what I've read, like you said, but the, the short story is called All That You Love Will Pass Away. Oh um, God, I love that story. It's a, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. It's kind of what he does well. It's, you know, he, he, he loves the short form. I'm sorry. He loves the short story as a form. Um, he's very good at it. Um, short story as a form is much more of a question asking form than a question answering form. Um, this one in particular, it's about a man in a hotel room contemplating suicide. Um, and similar to sell the, the short story ends in a way that is open-ended. You don't know if he actually commits suicide, but it leaves it right. on a hopeful note in such a way that you're like, I think this guy might make it out. It's really beautiful. Um, really powerful. And I love it a lot. Yeah. I love that one too. I'm going to, I'm going to cheat because I wasn't considering individual short stories. So I'm going to name like, uh, the book that I was going to name for my number three, I was going to give props to the girl who loved Tom Gordon, Yeah, which is simple and short and uh, also deals with some some faith themes, as it were. It has my favorite Stephen King quote, possibly my favorite quote ever by anyone, which is God has a funny habit of waiting to show up until the bottom of the ninth inning, uh, which I think is a powerful and profound quote and a, and a really potent observation. Even for us non-sports fans. Oh, that's true. Exactly. But, uh, but if I were to mention a short story, my favorite short story of Stephen King's um, I believe is also collected in Everything's Eventual, but is uh, The Man in the Black Suit, uh, oh, yeah. which is uh, a, a wonderful sort of sort of uh, gothic tale. It's it's uh, it's knee deep in ancient short story horror literature. And uh, and I love The Man in the Black Suit. And uh, it, it, the two stories that I usually recommend to people to check out. If they just want to read something short and get an idea of the kind of things he can do, I actually name All That You Love Can Be Carried Away and The Man in the Black Suit because I love those two so, so much. For me, I think my top, it would take a lot to unseat this book as a favorite, and it would probably never make a Quarterly King because it's part of a larger story. But hands down, I love Wizard and Glass from the Dark Tower mm. series. Um, yeah. You know, I... I couldn't even precisely articulate why it is, you know, it's him just sort of, you know, hitting on all cylinders. It's, it's this, it's an, even though the dark tower is this sweeping epic wizard and glass specifically is an isolated story. It's a, it's a background story, a flashback story of Roland Deschain's young life. Um, it's, it's got everything life, death, char you trees. Um, I, I love, I love that book. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I don't know. Uh, you and I haven't talked much about this on the show or off it. I, I'll, I'm interested to see how this whole Dark Tower adaptation is going to go. I like the rumors that they're suggesting so far in terms of it being able to steer a bit a field in a real organic way. But yeah. regardless, I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited for the upcoming film um, and hopeful for it because they've tried a number of ways a number of times to get it off the ground. And the fact that this is actually pushing forward, I'm really excited to see what they ultimately, ultimately come up with. So that is a, that is a, that is a much longer winded than we probably wanted to way of introducing what is going to be special beefier episodes called quarterly Kings. This is the very first entry in that. And we are, yes, as we have suggested multiple times, though not explicitly stated dealing with, uh, his first book, right? Yeah, this is his first novel. We're, we are, 
more directly addressing the film version, just it makes it a little easier on listeners and on podcasters. <laughs> but uh, we are dealing with Carrie today. Um, I'll let you dive a bit heavier in. I know for me personally, I've seen the film in prep for this twice now and have read the book, but speak, speak to your experience with this work. Sure, sure. I can't remember exactly when I read this book, but I can, I can remember really being surprised when I first read it at, at its formatting. Uh, I, if you've only experienced any movie versions, any film versions of, of Carrie, um, you might be surprised to discover that the novel is, is structured very much like a docudrama where parts of narrative are interspersed with uh, elements from, I'm going to hopefully say this in a way that will make listeners understand it, a fictitious nonfiction version of the events that the narrative is describing. You know, uh, there, there's a, a book within the book, so to speak, called The Shadow Exploded, and it also is featuring clips from interviews and newspaper articles. And uh, so the narrative plays out not only with scenes that are dictated in standard novel prose, but also with these little asides that add flavor to the characters and to the story. And I think that Carrie, which it almost pains me to say this, this will probably make sense in a second. It almost pains me to say this because it was his first one, but I still think it ranks among his, one of his, if not his most well-structured, tightest work that he has ever produced, which makes me sad to say because it was his first one. <laughs> so it's well, like, it, I feel a little bad yeah, saying I mean, that he did his first well, work. You know, I mean, the the man is, um, he doesn't know how to stop writing. And so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, I can get, sometimes I can get away from him. And I agree with you. Carrie is very economical, uh, very efficient. Um, yes. It is probably, yeah. if I had to guess, one of his shortest full works. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, a, yeah. Interestingly, your, your, your description made me think of this. Any even nominal fan of King's work should make it a priority to read on writing, whether you're a creative person oh, yes. or not. Um, that's his, uh, I think he actually calls it a memoir, uh, a, a memoir, memoir of the craft. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what I was looking for. Um, but he, it, it's lovely in that book where he describes the experience of writing Carrie and having it be published when they oh, were, yeah. I don't know if you remember this story. I have this image of him I on do. the phone. He answers the phone and they're expecting X amount of dollars for the publication or for purchasing his manuscript, um, which would, which at the time would have been a decent sum and what they instead got was, you know, gosh, if let's just say he was expecting five grand, it ended up being like, you know, 50 or 60 grand, uh, which in the seventies, when this would have been released was a healthy sum of money for a first time writer. Um, so yeah, uh, on writing and carry excellent works. Yeah. I, and in fact, I was going to perhaps briefly summarize that, that story of publication, but I think I'm actually going to not do that and, and echo what you said about encouraging listeners to check out on writing. Um, I was going to briefly it's summarize. An, it's an easy read. It's an easy absolutely. read. It's a very compelling read. Yeah, absolutely. And he goes into a lot more detail about uh, how Carrie came to be written. The one thing that I will say, um, and it is true, it's not uh, urban myth, that um, he began writing Carrie and threw it in the garbage. And his wife, Tabitha, fished it out of the garbage and told him to continue writing it. You may have heard that version of the story that says that she fished it out of the garbage and sent it to the publisher. It wasn't completed when she fished it out of the garbage. <laughs> she had, he had to actually keep writing it, but she encouraged and coaxed him into it. In fact, uh, one of his de one of the dedications, I forget, it might even be the dedication to Carrie. I don't have the book in front of me, uh, but in one of the dedications to one of his books, 
is uh, he dedicates it to Tabby, uh, who got me into it and then got me out of it, which I think is beautiful. That's awesome. And to be clear, uh, not that this necessarily needs addressing, but just in case it does, we are specifically talking about the Sissy Spacek original ad- adaptation of Carrie, not the 2000, what, 10 or so. Um, well, there've been, there've been three actually. Oh, really? Yeah. It, yeah. No, no there's a Carrie two, I think. Right. Yeah, there was a carry. No, no, no. There was a carry two in 1999 called The Rage, and it's and it was all all of it, right? It was all the rage. (laughs) (laughs) It has been years since I've seen that movie, and I have such a. uh, I don't remember it very well, except that I remember not liking it. But there were actually two other adaptations of this novel of Carrie. Uh, There was one in 2002 that was originally intended, believe it or not as the pilot of a TV series. It was a made-for-TV movie uh, over the course of three television hours, uh, so actual runtime like two hours and 12 minutes. But um, it was intended to be like the launch of uh, a TV series for Carrie, um, which, spoiler alert for Carrie, I'm going to spoil something right now. If you've read it or you've seen the movie, you know this already, but I have to spoil it now to address this. Uh, So Carrie does not survive this story. But in that TV version, that is the biggest misstep that they did is that she survives at the end. Carrie well, survives. Cause, well, because you can't have a TV series if you don't have a Carrie. <laughs> exactly. And she went on to move to New York and hook up <laughs> with some best friends. And it became, instead of that, Sex in the City. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Sex in the City, direct sequel to uh, to Carrie. You heard it here first. Featuring the same um, character. But then they made, the, they made the other one in 2013, which I have seen. And I feel, so fans for the last couple of years have been crying out for a director's cut of this film because the director went in. I mentioned earlier that it was, that the book is structured kind of like a docudrama. Well, the director of the 2013 version, which escaped, his name escapes me at the moment, and I apologize for that. But that director set out to make, uh, like, to incorporate things like social media live videos and uh, documentary footage and everything. He, he set out to make something that was a bit more akin structurally to what the book was. But then, I don't know if it was studio edits or, or what it was, they trimmed something like 45 minutes from the movie. And what we get winds up being a much more straightforward narrative adaptation, which is essentially what the Sissy Spacek version already was. So it felt kind of pointless to have done it because what ultimately could have really done some interesting things and been a closer adaptation of the novel wound up being largely irrelevant, despite a, a, a decent performance by Julianne Moore and by Chloe Grace Moretz, who we talked about on Let Me In. But, uh, but yeah, we are, in, in terms of the film, uh, we're going to be, anything moving forward that we address is likely going to be either from the novel itself or from primarily the 1976 Brian De Palma directed film starring Sissy Spacek, which I love this because Carrie was successful as a novel anyway, but it was actually this film which helped promote Stephen King as a popular personality. Huh. Um in fact, in the original trailer for the movie, they misspell his name. They spell wow. it uh, S-T-E-V-E-N oh. instead of P-H-E-N, which is a minor mishap. But th- he was so unknown at the time. And this film was popular and the novel was popular. It wasn't like a number one bestseller, but it but it sold well and made money. And so then, um, you know, he, he went on to, to write a couple of other things and, and uh, his success grew from there. But he, I think even in interviews and stuff, will also largely credit this film as being part of why he became as successful as he as he did, because Brian De Palma did such a wonderful job 
in so many brilliant ways, adapting this story into the film that we get. And, and when I rewatched it, I was, I was reminded at just how well crafted it really is. It's so solid. It, and, and I mean, it's, it's a movie from the seventies. It feels like it's from the seventies, particularly with some of the hairstyles and the, and the clothing, but it is, it is so and with the young potent. John Travolta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife is a very big fan of John Travolta because her favorite movie is Grease. And so I told her, I said, you do not want to see John Travolta in this movie because he's, he's terrible. He's just like Danny Zuko, but if Danny Zuko was a horrible human being, <laughs> which, which let's be honest, Danny Zuko probably is a horrible human being. I, mean, <laughs> I won't tell her you said that. Right. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, you know, like, we probably could go to the carry credits and it actually says Danny Zuko by Travolta's name. We just happened to catch a different <laughs> slice of his high school career. <laughs> in that's <Greece>. hilarious. <laughs> oh man. He's yeah, just bitter in Carrie. Carrie's the sequel to Greece. I know Greece too, you know, exists, but Carrie wow. just takes place. He, he, he transferred from Rydell <laughs> after Greece one and he's bitter. And he's just an angry young man. <laughs> wow. That's, that was that was a fun little digression. Uh, let's jump to this movie, Riri. Can we do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's um, do it. So, so if you've stuck with us this long, you are ardent fans, and we love you. Um, <laughs> we do. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about Sissy Spacek's Carrie, and we're going to follow. Believe it or not, after an hour, our normal format. So. Let's just talk about some, some bullet point kind of cursory likes, dislikes. Can I cuss and you, and you just bleep it out when we, I will. Down? Yeah. Go, All right. Go right so ahead. what I wrote down during the locker room scene was I have three daughters. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I wrote down in the locker yep. room scene. Yeah. Because yeah. that. That actually doubles as one of my scary scenes. That entire scene, everything, everything about oh, that scene yeah. scares the hell out of me as a father of, yeah. many of many daughters. You know that feeling? This is just fun. Um, I really loved watching this a second time. I'd seen it several years ago for a Halloween viewing. I love the experience of watching a movie you already like on just a sort of normal level. Rewatch, right. rewatching right. it. And especially for a purpose like this, where you're, you know, we're approaching this a little more critically than we might just a normal sort of viewing of something. And it just, you just really dig in a lot more. You, you invest a lot more, a lot more deeply into the characters, into the story. Absolutely. You know, and, and this movie really did that for me a couple nights ago when I rewatched it. And that locker room scene is traumatizing. And, and I, yes. I'm, I'm only, I'm abandoning the jokey nature there. Like that's a, that is a horrific scene. Um, yeah, it really is. So that, that would be just one of my sort of off the top things. Um, I loved the teacher character. I thought, what a great. Oh, yeah. She's called, she's called Collins in this. She's missed S. Jarden in the, in the novel, but, uh, I'm going to correct yeah, you there in a way that you would never know. I might be able to correct you. I believe the actual pronunciation there is Desjardins. The reason I say Desjardin is because I have heard the Sissy Spacek narrated audiobook, and she says Desjardin every single time. Well, she yeah. might be wrong, except for the what's funny about that is I used to know some people D E S J A R D I N. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their mm -hmm. last their last name, and it's that they, they are Desjardin. So somebody's wrong here, Sissy Spacek. Somebody's wrong. So yeah, we'll we'll say that the, uh, the we'll ring the bell on her. The official. <laughs> Let's dump some pig's blood on her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, but I mean, regardless, they, that's that's a great. Regardless, character. yeah, that yeah, she's a she's a wonderful character. And well, I now love, I hate her. Now I hate her because I got her name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I love the scene. It's so many of these moments. This is what I meant when I said that it's one of his w- most well constructed stories. There's not a wasted scene, and I'm and I'm sorry. I love Stephen King. He is he is my favorite writer. Um, my favorite living writer and pa- possibly my favorite writer ever, although Ray Bradbury gives him a long run for his money. But, but Stephen King has many a scene in many a book that could easily be excised. They're still fun to read and they're still enjoyable, but I'm like, okay, well, this is not really taking us anywhere. This is an excursion somewhere. Carrie has none of those. Every right. single scene is vital, even in the novel. It, it definitely is true in the movie, uh, but even in the novel, every scene is vital to either the theme or the narrative of what's happening. It's very propulsive in that way. And I love the scene where the teacher confronts all of the students about how they treated Carrie in yes. that in that locker room. Um, it's powerful. And it definitely is not something that you would necessarily see fly in a, in a modern story. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily, like, there's so much, there's so much political correctness sensitivity nowadays, you would not necessarily see it expressed for a teacher to be so hard on oh, these yeah. kids for how rough they were to this other student. Um, it would all be, uh, maybe I'm being a bit dismissive here, but I think it would all be uh, sort of soft pedaled and soft shoed in a variety of different ways. But in the, in the novel, especially, and even in the film, um, there's, there's a lot of coming to the defense of Carrie uh, on the behalf of the, of the teachers and the administrative staff they they stand up for her in a very big way, even under the threat of, and this is not in the film, but even under the threat of a lawsuit coming against them, where they said, like, uh, there's one scene where the, uh, you know, the main antagonist girl, now her name escapes me, Betty, I think her name is, but she... You can call her uh, Betty. I'll call her Betty. You can call um, me Al. And then you can call me Al, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <I'll be> <laughs> um, so, uh, but... She, uh, you know, when she refuses to do the detention and loses her prom tickets and all that other sort of stuff, her dad comes to the, in the novel, comes to the school and threatens to sue them for that interaction with, uh, in the film, Miss Collins, where she slaps her. Um, he threatens to sue them. And the principal, in, in one of my favorite moments in the novel, uh, says, okay, fine, if you want to sue, that's fine. We'll sue on behalf of Carrie White for the trauma that your daughter caused to her. Uh, in this in this moment. And so they really come to her defense. They really come to Carrie's defense, which makes what happens all the more tragic. Sure. Well, it's definitely it's definitely not a I mean, the movie is definitely not politically correct. Um, yeah. Oh, ha- no. ha- you know, hashtag MAGA, you know, come on. Oh, um, <laughs> so I texted you uh, and I, I want to address two things here. I texted you this thought and and I mean this in like the most like greatest way I can express it. I said, this movie is such a slow, painful walk to a bitter, bitter end. I mean, it is, it is, I mean, like you, your heart breaks many times over for this character. And one of the things I wrote down as a like, um, it's a quote and I'll expound upon it. And Carrie says to her mother, she says, I'm going mama and you're not going to stop me. I love in the movie, well, you know, I'm sure this is in some, to some degree in the book too, but I love Carrie coming into her own. Like it's mm-hmm. really lovely to watch. And again, that's, I hate even saying that because you know where this ends. And that's what I mean by the slow painful right. walk here. But for those moments, it's this really lovely coming of age sequence, you yeah. know, of this, this 
otherwise kind of homely young girl who is extremely secluded and isolated. But mm-hmm. she's she's got, I thought this watching the movie, she's got pretty good social skills for someone they try to at least paint as this recluse. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, right. she's very interactive. She's not like an extrovert by any means. Um, sure, sure. But so it's really lovely when she gets asked to the prom, she finally accepts and starts to actually accept that she's going and, and really enjoy that. It's really lovely to watch. Yeah. And you know what? The other thing that I would say to that is, and this struck me in the viewing of it, uh, particularly in the film, uh, she's just, she's kind, especially, yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is especially difficult given what we know her home life to be. Because if there's anything that you would qualify her home life as at the bottom of the list would be kind. Her sure. mother is not kind to her at all. In the, in, in the movie, she throws her in that closet. In the book, she throws her in that closet at one point for three days in a row and doesn't feed or, or, or give her anything but a little bit of water. Um, so her mother See, is she, She's pure. living in the cupboard. All she needed was a Hagrid to come along. And then this would have been such a different story. <laughs> and bring her home. See, we've already You're named witch, two sequels. <laughs> we've, we've named two sequels to, to Carrie <laughs> in this podcast. Um, what was the other Sex and, oh, Sex right, and right. the City and uh, Harry Potter. The entire and Harry Potter franchise. Don't forget franchise. the prequel, Grease. Oh, yeah, and the prequel, Grease. Shared universes um, everywhere. <laughs> but um but I remember thinking and I remember thinking it was it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant on Stephen King's part um but Sissy Spacek brings such the right tone to this role um that she is just such a kind sweet girl she just suffers from having more power than she knows what to do with and having literally no one in her life who will you know, who, who will help her with this. She has right. nobody to support her in the, in the, I, I need help navigating through life kind of conversation. And it's just, it's well, really tragic see, because she's so sweet. Well, I'm going to challenge that just a hair because I actually found something I liked about this movie that differs from, uh, or doesn't differ, but is complemented and contrasted by like a let me in. I do think she's got someone in the form of Miss Collins or Miss Des slash Desjardins. Um, oh, right. You know, at least in the film version, she t- she seems to genuinely care for Carrie in a really lovely way. I just I, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying that Carrie doesn't have or doesn't feel like she has someone she can trust. But I do think it's a lovely story where this adult is trying to get her to trust her. And I think that's a really that's to me, that's what makes it all the more tragic by the end. Yeah. You know, is this yeah. person really is trying to show love and compassion and care to her. It's just not right. quite getting through because of all the static. Um, do you have any other cursories? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, why don't we, in, in lieu of maybe a cursory thing, let me, um, let me just, let me just briefly, let me take like a minute and a half to summarize the plot of this for people who have absolutely never seen this film and never read this book. Carrie is uh, a teenage girl, um, whose mother is a, I'm, I'm saying this accurately, not, um, uh, insultingly, whose mother is a Bible thumping lunatic. And, uh, is, is someone who absolutely just is, is an evil, wicked person in her own right. Um, but poor Carrie, um, it just has no guiding, no real guiding light, uh, for how to navigate through the horrors of high school. And when she has her first, uh, menstrual period in the locker room shower with a group of very, uh, cruel and just cold hearted other teenage girls, uh, they begin to tease her and make fun of her while she is literally so oblivious to what's happening that she thinks she's dying. She thinks she's bleeding to death. And they are cruel to her and they uh, insult her and they throw 
they throw things at her and they just they're just very very that's, mean that's to some her. serious locker room talk going on there yeah yeah no kidding um but as a result of that there's consequences some of those girls get their prom tickets revoked and then one girl sue snell asks her boyfriend if her boyfriend would take Carrie to the prom. And she's trying to do some degree of penance, trying to sort of make things up to her, let Carrie get a little bit of exposure to the more palatable, popular world. And so her boyfriend agrees to do that. Um, but then uh, things, uh, we'll just, we'll probably talk about this more in a few minutes. So I'll just say things do not go well at that at that prom. But that's sort of the basic premise of, of Carrie. And, and if it's we also kind of the clear, basic premise of all proms, right? <laughs> yeah, it was it was mine too. You know, <laughs> so Reed, but, you know, <laughs> tell us about your prom going experience. No, that is that is um, scarier even than anything that we're talking about. Um, but you, you, but I will, uh, you know, I didn't mention it, and if it's not clear to the audience, uh, Carrie has the ability of uh, telekinesis. She can make things move with her mind, and uh, that is sort of an an undertone through the bulk of the story, but comes to horrific fruition at at the prom. Uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. You know, uh, before we, and we should kind of segue out of this area, you, you glanced off something that I wrote down here talking about what occurs to her in terms of uh, getting her first period in the locker room, which is so, you know, you know, what's interesting about the way that's portrayed in the movie is you almost don't know how to handle her. She's so right over the top in terms of her response. And then you understand once she's at home and you realize this is the first time this has happened and she was never told about this. And what I wrote down is, you know, um, how heartbreaking it is when she says to her mom, she says, why didn't you tell me my yeah. goodness? You know, again, we're yeah. that, starting to walk up to some themes there, but, uh, just a really powerful, powerful scene. Um, did you have any, um, like I, I jokingly, though, sincerely mentioned the locker room being a scary scene for me earlier. The only other thing I would say that is I'd seen the movie before. So and read the book. So nothing truly scary. But um, the hand out of the ground at the end makes me jump every dang time. Oh, you know? yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Yeah. And and every audience ever. In fact, it's not obviously a scene like that is not in the novel. But Stephen King said after having seen the film, that's that's pure Brian De Palma. And Stephen King said after having seen the film that he wishes that was how his novel ended. Because it was so brilliant cool. of, a, of an ending, and and it really is. It's such a it's such a powerful final note to end on. And you know what? It, it's something that's kind of haunting too. I don't know that I would necessarily call this film scary, um, but it is wall to wall horrific. And and I'm making the distinction there that this is not the kind of thing that I walk away from jittery or having nightmares about. It's the kind of thing where I leave and my stomach is so taught with with grief and and horror at what people can do to one yes. another and at cer at how certain tragedies play themselves out and how how many ways they could have been avoided and and looking at and again this is dancing right up to the edge of theme but that's something that you know this story illustrates so well is how many points along the way a tragedy that cost many people their lives could have been completely and utterly avoided Right. By things at, at Carrie's home, by things in Carrie's teachers, by things in Carrie's friends, like so many things could have been avoided at every step of the way. And so when you see how everything plays out, it simultaneously feels inevitable, but at the same time just makes your heart, makes mine break with how many times it could have been danced aside. And, and, and this did not have to happen. These people did not have to die. 
And this poor girl did not have to have literally every moment of her life, save for a few minutes before everything hits the fan, be so fraught with distress and upset and tension. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's a heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking story for me. And it is horrific. It is indeed horrific, but, um, but it is in, in such a tragic way that, that I just walked away. My wife at one point when I was rewatching it, she walked out and she said, man, honey, your face. And I said, it just, it gets me every single time. It yeah. gets me because I know what's coming. Right. And I'm, and I'm powerless to stop it, but you see all the different threads along the way where it could be stopped. And it's, well, let's, can, it is, it's devastating. Can we, are you ready to dive into themes? I've got something to say. That's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's that go way ahead we don't and do turn it. this into a two hour podcast, but Hey, quarterly King, <laughs> quarterly King, you know, quarterly King, everybody. It's oversized. It's episode. only once, it's once a quarter. So yeah, <laughs> right. supersize. It's a new number one. You got a double size <laughs> issue here. Four ninety nine. everybody. Um, <clears throat> I, so uh, in, in the interest of time, I'll whittle these down. I've got two pretty, pretty big uh, themes that I'd like to address. One that feeds right out of what you were saying. You were talking about what I phrased earlier, the slow, bitter walk. Like you, you, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, this is, you are powerless as a viewer that, which is a fascinating incidental perhaps, or intentional filmmaking technique. Like as a viewer, I know where this is going and, and you want to say just someone, please stop this train. And you just yeah. can't. And you're just watching it until the wreck happens and, and it all goes up in flames, literally. But what I want to ask here is, it's interesting. So the, the, the notion of kindness has come up a couple times in recent Fear of God episodes. Um, it will never come up in Wrath of God episodes. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but in The Witch, you reference the scripture verse talking about Acts of kindness of the wicked. What phrase that for me? Do you remember? Even the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Yes. Okay. So kindness in that regard. Well, in Bone Tomahawk, we spent a lot of time talking about lies as kindness, untruth yes. as kindness. And, and what does that mean? Well, right. it's interesting watching this movie. And what I wrote down was act of kindness gone wrong. And the question I'd sort of have for us to talk about for a second is were Sue and her boyfriend wrong? For their attempt to help Carrie. Because, mm. because there's something really interesting happening there. As much as you want the train to stop, I think one, it's expert casting. I don't have the IMDb list in front of me to know who that actress is that plays Sue, but she. Amy is, Irving. Okay. She has such clear empathy for Carrie. And it reads yeah. in every scene she's in, you never, because this isn't what, ha what is happening and it would have been would have been an error to do this, but you never feel like what she's attempting to do with the boyfriend in the prom and Carrie is some sort of manipulation. Cause it's not, no, no, she is trying to say, can we, what, what is a way we can make this person feel like a person in a way that no one yeah. else is. And it's such a bitter, tragic spoke on the wheel of this story that what is a very sincere act of kindness instigates everything. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's the, 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 the axis on which the story turns into the fate of everybody. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And in the, in the novel, that is explored to at least a degree in that we learn that, uh, she came under intense investigation because when it was discovered that she had prompted her boyfriend to ask Carrie to the prom, 
there was a group of people who wanted to hold her liable for all the deaths because A, she survived, and B, there's like, hey, you were clearly planning a prank here, and right. because of this prank, so many people died. And so the novel spends a little bit of time uh, and attention to that exact to that exact thing, and it doesn't give any easy answers. Sure. It leaves you wondering, as we are right now, of of whether or not this was the right thing for them to do. But it's interesting because I myself have experienced, to of course, far lesser degrees, the the, the well intentioned moment gone wrong. Right, like just you're trying to do something good, you're trying to do something right. But in the process, you're, you just wind up making it worse. But isn't you open it, well, up a but can. see, the, see, this isn't this interesting. So I would categorize this differently than what I think you're describing. I think there's mm. a difference between, oh man, I just tried to get it right. And man, I screwed up. You know, we're both married dudes. We know what that feeling is like. You're like, oh, right, I, right. I, I didn't think everything through from every facet and it came off wrong. Um, but I was trying to do the right thing. I think what's fascinating and, and is worthy of conversation here is, there was not an effort to try to do the right thing. They did a right thing in the context oh, of their yes. worlds. You know what I mean? They're high school students. Yeah, right. It's not like they, you know, adopted a kid in Africa through Compassion International or something. I don't mean like that, but I mean like in the world, in the context of their life, they saw Sue, saw a yeah. very real problem and acted in compassion. Like right. I would personally, I watch this story play out and I don't pass judgment on Sue. Oh, I don't either. I can't, right. I can't, you know, I don't think, and it's interesting what uh, you're usually the one to invoke scripture here, but it's making me think of, you know, all of our righteousness as filthy rags, which we always mm. use as an indictment of human effort. Right. And I, right. and I wonder if that's not the case at all. Is, and, and it's more about, you know, <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men. The road mm -hmm. to hell is paved with good intentions. Like mm -hmm. there is a way in which, and this is interesting. Go with me on this. There's a way in which your best and kindest acts might still result in pain and tragedy. Does that mean you yeah. don't do the kind act? Mm. You know wow. What I mean? That is a, yeah. And that is a difficult, that is a, a necessary question to ask, but it is so difficult to answer. Sure. Because, because then it, it comes down to, if I'm understanding you correctly, the question underneath the question is what makes the right thing the right thing? Sure. Because it is good or because of the end result. And right. that's yes. a, you know, that's right. a sticky right. thing, you know? What makes it right? Is it right because it's just? Is it right because it's good intentioned? Is it right because it's, you know, it, it ended well? And that is something that we all have to, to a degree, wrestle with. And we all have to come to terms sometimes with the fact that, well, and, and I think what, what is vital to understand is that we are only in control of what we do. Right. And this story so obviously illustrates that we are not in control of every facet of what everybody else is going to do. Right. And because we're not in control of what everybody else is going to do, um, for Listeners who do not know the horror of the prom, the uh, Tommy, who is Carrie's date to the prom, he and she are elected king and queen of the prom. And as they're standing up on the stage, the girl who earlier it was, um, and got, for the record, just so we're clear, it was a rigged election. It actually was a rigged election. Yeah, it, yeah, no, yeah, it actually was. They uh, they had taken the real ballots away and filtered them in to make sure that Carrie and Tommy were going to be on the stage. So when they um, 
when they're up on the stage, the girl who was scorned and lost her prom privileges and was slapped by, you know, the teacher uh, and that we referenced earlier, she um, has positioned a bucket of pig's blood directly above the stage. And when very famous thing. Yeah. And when yeah. Carrie is, in fact, <laughs> ironically, you know, I guess I shouldn't worry too much about spoilers because in every copy of the DVD I see, you don't on the cover image is right. Carrie soaked in blood with flames uh, on the cover her. image of everything. What right. with flames behind her? Yeah, with flames behind her. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, they've positioned a bucket of pig's blood above the stage. They drop it on her, and when they drop it on her, uh, at first the audience there is horrified and startled, but then they begin to laugh. And Carrie unleashes hell, quite literally hell, on every single person. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. And one of, yeah, I, I have a theme to, to connect to with that exact statement, um, in a second. But to get back to what I think is, is fascinating and important about what you're identifying is I think, I think ultimately that what Sue did in this moment, and I should be clear, I do not indict her for what happens. In, in the novel, in the sure. movie, anything, I do not indict her as responsible for what happens. But I do think that it, that in some degree, she is trying to show Carrie some kindness. But I think to a large, possibly even larger degree, she is trying to appease her conscience for knowing that she treated this girl poorly. And I can, yeah, I can see that. And so while that does not make me indict her for what happens, I think it is an important distinction between what we're asking about what is the right thing to do. And, an, and, and there is always this sort of conversation about are benevolent acts done for self-promotion, are they still benevolent acts? Are they still good? Are they right. like if you do something to either appease your own conscience or promote yourself, are you still doing a good thing? And it's a complicated question. And honestly, what I lean on, and though I did not prepare to reference the scripture, so I'm embarrassingly not going to know where it is located, that question was asked of the Apostle Paul, where they said, you know, some people are preaching just to, to make money. Some people are right. preaching, they're, they're promoting the gospel just so that they can get wealthy. And Paul's opinion, which, you know, there's all that nuance about how you feel about what's in the scripture and Paul's writings and all of these other things. But Paul writes in that, he said, it doesn't matter why they're doing it. They're, they're promoting the gospel. So that, so the gospel's being preached. And so that's a perspective that you could come to and say, well, good things are good things, even if they don't turn out good. That you, you do good things and those will ultimately, like your good intentions somehow went out over uh, bad results. Sure. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that entirely. I don't know that I necessarily always will sit in the camp of, well, you meant well. I think that. Well, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that, that like, I, I think that it's important for us to be discerning about the circumstances at hand. And I definitely think there are, I'll, I'll say it this way as to kind of wrap up the conversation. She was not wrong. I don't think she was doing the wrong thing to show kindness to Carrie. I think there were other ways she could have shown kindness to Carrie. Number one could have just been being a friend to her in the day to day basis. Sure. Um, reaching out to her in other ways. I think she was trying to make this grand gesture by having her boyfriend, right. Tommy, invite right, him, right. invite her to the prom. Um, yeah, that no was doubt. It, no doubt. It's a slightly odd course of action. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just, just one little caveat to what you were saying, too. I think 
I don't disagree with your assessment that, you know, um, absolving guilt, but I also think there's a difference between pure absolution of guilt and attempt to make amends, you know? Right. Um, Right. And any therapist worth their salt would, would meet with Sue Snell, who's going to be in therapy for the next four decades. Um, yes. If, if worse things don't happen in the interim. Um, yeah. but would say to her, you know, John Travolta pulled the string, you know, that this, right. this other chick pulled the string. Like you, you, she will feel responsible, but she, she in fact right. was not responsible for the actual act that, that right. initiated all this terrible tragedy. Regardless, yeah. I think, I, I do think that's an interesting, uh, I don't know. That's an interesting conversation, you know, just the, the nature of acts of kindness, because I think, I think there's a real way and, and, and maybe I, I take this for myself and apply it and figure out how to apply it in life. But that, that sort of, um, all of our righteous acts as, as filthy rags. Filthy rags. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, like I, I don't think the Lord would want us to view that as well, thus you should just not do righteous acts, you know? Um, right. Right. I think, I think there's an important distinction that should be made there. Um, I, I've got yeah. one more thing, but I want you to, you, you seem to be having one on deck. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll mention because we haven't dealt a lot with it right now. We just called her a Bible thumping lunatic. Uh, but the mother is pivotal to sure. understanding what's happening in this story. Uh, because the mother suffers from a psychotic belief and I'm, I'm, I'm calling it that it is a, it is a mental illness, uh, as presented in this mother. It is not, it would be a mistake, I think, and some people might disagree with me, but it would be a mistake, I think, to categorize what happens with Margaret White as simply religion gone bad. Margaret White suffers mental illness. She does not have a grip on reality in, in terms of how you treat people, how you engage with people. Every Bible passage that she quotes is incorrect. None of what she says in the film is in the Bible, but she's quoting it as if it is scripture. And she has pervaded Carrie's life with this, this wrathful, haunting kind of God figure. And so Carrie has absolutely no context in which to understand a loving and caring and redeeming God. She doesn't, she doesn't have any of that in her, in her heart or in her mind. But one of the things that you, you cited earlier, the line, they're all going to laugh at you. What I find truly brilliant about King's work in general. King knows what frightens us, whether he was gifted, you know, with this instinctively or he has just learned it through observing people. Uh, Stephen King knows what terrifies us. And what happens to Carrie White at that prom is every parent and every child's worst nightmare. And I wrote this down. I said that it's their worst nightmare come to life that mom or dad were right to be afraid. Sure. And it's one of those things where she, Carrie, is kind of bucking against her mother to come into her own. It's not all sin. You got to give people some, some understanding, mama. You know, I'm going, mama. But then, good Lord, her mom was right. Like, her, there, there's no way her mom could have known sure, right. what was happening. She wasn't prophetic, but she wound up being correct. And it rips me to pieces. That when this poor girl comes home soaked in blood and sits and, and bathes alone and then she's cleaned up and then she sees her mother. And while she is begging her mother for who, who by the way, has been hiding behind the friggin door the whole time, the entire time. Yeah. Right. Completely ignoring her daughter. And when her daughter is begging, hold me, mama, 
hold me, mama. This is what, this is what breaks my heart about this story is her mother is waiting there with a butcher knife. Right. To kill this girl. There is nowhere in this girl's life that she's going to find any compassion, any understanding, any sensitivity. She's got it nowhere. She cannot escape extreme abnormality anywhere in her life. And I think it's one of those things that you, we were talking earlier, and maybe this will connect the, the theme that I'm scratching at. Margaret White is the only, quote unquote, religious character in this story. In fact, we, we mentioned in our pilot episode, we referenced Carrie about religion gone bad, and she is the only religious character in this novel, yet she categorically does not represent a faithful whole life in, in any capacity. So it is devoid from Carrie's world of any sense of godliness, any sense of wholeness or righteousness. She just receives this distorted, confused psychotic view of what it means to to live a righteous life. And we were talking earlier about how, what Sue could have done to either make amends or to do something right. And by starters, I said it earlier, but somebody just needs to be a friend to Carrie. Right. Tommy, yeah, Tommy yeah, at yeah. the prom is a friend to her. Yeah. He calls her, he calls her beautiful. You know, you could question like, what's he doing, man? At one point he like gives her a small peck on the lips and is like, you've got a girlfriend. Like what's going right, on? Right. But one thing that I consistently walk away from is he's just being kind to this girl. Right. He's just be, he's just inviting her to hang out with people and he's just trying to get her to feel normal and get her to feel light for a moment. And, and he, this is what I will say. I didn't write this down or plan to say it, but I'll say it now. He represents the the sort of biggest picture of like godliness or righteousness that you would give to a Carrie White in the entire film. Sure. Because he's the only one who's just really like treating her like she's a flesh and blood human being with desires and needs and 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 just treats her in any capacity like like she's a person. And there's a scene where they're dancing right before mm -hmm. the big sort of prom moment. And it's interesting. I read this actually in Roger Ebert's review of this, of this movie, where as they're dancing one way, the camera is spinning another yeah, way. Yeah. And as they're doing it, it's a, it's a lengthy little moment. Yeah, I remember the, thinking that. The camera speeds up yeah. and the camera begins to go around them a little faster. And Ebert observed about that moment that it was as if things were getting out of control as if things were spinning out of control. And uh, it was a powerful observation to, to, to take a step back from that and to say, you know, like, poor, poor Tommy, you could indict Sue. It was Sue's idea for him to bring her to the prom. But if there's any, like, what I would categorize as, like, a, a purely innocent victim, it's Tommy. Right. Because Tommy is doing what his girlfriend wants to do, and he's, he's bringing her along, and again, is just consistently kind to her and i mean he takes a bucket to the dome with the best of them man he just <laughs> <laughs> he just gets laid out by that rusty yep. old bucket oh my gosh yes i want to i want to take the thing the track you're laying and and, and lay some of my own and run with it but but i don't want to cut you off if there's more specific no no that's that that's pretty much it it's just you know i and and in this film and i'll be honest with listeners like Sometimes I'll come into these episodes and I'll have a kind of a conclusion. With this one, I have more questions than I have conclusions about some of the themes that we're scratching at about how you, how you do goodness in the world and how you be kind to one another and, right. and the least of these and all of the different things that we could talk about as it relates to this because it is a truly horrific idea to think that you could have the best of intentions and 
accidentally cause the worst of things as a result. That, that, that's, that's basically all it is, is that I think that there's still value in us being kind to one another, but we also have to be discerning as well that it doesn't always guarantee that things are going to go well. You know, uh, you, you, you introduced sort of where this theme idea I have was going to go anyway, and we can, you know, sort of start to dovetail this towards a, for our, for our listener's sake, hopeful ending. Um, <laughs> what I wrote down is the weaponizing of faith. Oh, wow. And, and there's a lot to unpack here, but, but clearly it's, it surrounds the mom. And I love Carrie's line that she just says, everything isn't a sin. Yeah. Yeah. And and see, it's interesting because you, I, I don't, I'm going to put words in your mouth here. And so I understand there's some nuance that I want you to offer if it needs to be done. It felt like you sort of dismissed Carrie's mom, not as a potent and real force in Carrie's life. I, I think you clearly understand that, but like you made it, like you referenced the fact that she doesn't quote actual scripture. Um, right. That, and that's what I mean by dismiss. Like, well, can we really call this woman a quote unquote Christian? Uh, because she's not using it properly. Well, that's where I'm going with this is I'll, I'll read what I wrote down and then I want us to unpack it a little bit. It, I just said, faith has the power to wound, to injure, to break a spirit away from God and wholeness. And does it exist that we can operate at such a non-real place, non-real meaning like we, we are not in the real world. Like we are not present with those around us. Can we operate there as believers in a way that actually impedes the gospel? Because mm. I want to look at Carrie, why, Carrie's mom and say, that's not a Christian. Like right. I want to, I want to do that, but I also want to do that with the parents and the witch. Right. right. But, but there is a certain degree to which I'm a gracious enough person in my own right. And what I know and understand of God and grace from him I'm a gracious enough in the spirit to know like there are ways in which how faith manifests itself in others is not a way that I think is right or healthy. But, but can I say, okay, well, thus you are not a Christian. I wouldn't go that far. I don't know that I'm allowed to go that far because God still does love this person. But I think it is right. fascinating. We're watching it play out right now. Faith as a weapon. Right. And, right. And it's interesting because I typed this out while, while you were talking, not because I wasn't listening, but because you were inspiring me. And I was thinking about the scripture of the word as a double-edged sword. And oh. where I want to go with this is interesting. You know, like the, the, the filthy rags scripture, the double-edged sword scripture often, correct me if I'm wrong, often get employed as aggressive texts, as hmm. offensive texts. The, the, the word is double-edged sword, able to pierce bone and marrow and, and cut through this and that. And like, we often paradigm that as, Oh, you use the scripture to, to slice through the untruth of the world. Right. Right. Whereas can it be possible that, Whoa, Whoa, let, let's think about the fact of Paul's imagery of a sword. Okay. Well, a sharp thing. Okay. A, a thing to be handled with care. Mm. And a thing with which to be delicate, like, mm. like f we, cause we often think of, how do I put this? We often think of faith itself as a good thing. And we get to either be good people with the good thing or we're bad people with the good thing. And thus the bad and the good kind of neuter each other. Whereas right. I'm suggesting the possibility, sometimes faith can be a bad thing. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, I, 
Oh yeah, no. I don't. I don't. I don't articulating, I would agree. I with don't you. mean to equivocally state. I think faith can be a bad thing. What I am saying is, if the word is a double-edged sword, you don't just give a sword to anybody, right? Right. Right. Oh yeah. And, let's and, not forget. Yeah. Let's go, let's go not ahead. forget that. And some listeners who have deep and rich theological understanding might balk at what I'm about to say. But let's not forget that the people who crucified Jesus and felt that they were doing the right thing by slaughtering this, you know, apostate, those people had tremendous faith that they were doing the right thing. Um, they had faith in their own understanding of the scriptures. They had faith in their own recognition of what was happening in the world around them and with these, and with this person. And I think that, again, if I'm understanding what you're, what you're putting forth here, I understand. I, th- I don't totally understand what I'm putting forth, but please <laughs> run with it. Yeah. That, that maybe we could, I mean, it might be a little too dismissive and too easy to say that it depends on what you're putting your faith in. But I think that is an element of it, that it is like what we would call an expression of faith. If it is really like we talked about in The Witch, the difference between what I would term as a robust, healthy faith and compartmentalized superstition, where you are using it as a means to control. Right. And Along that same line, I do think that when you see your faith as a means by which to control the world around you, I think that is terribly misguided. And I would, I would definitely agree that it's as if this thing has been entrusted to you that has tremendous power, that right, this, this faith right, has right. incredible power. But you see that incredible power. You see it at work in the lives of other people. And you, and you say, I can use this incredible power to keep bad things from me, to keep bad people away from me, to punish people who make me feel bad and to do all of these other right. things. So I'm going to yield this power in this way. And I think when that happens, I think that, that truth has a funny habit of not being denied. Mm-hmm. And if we're not able to properly and humbly access and live in a pursuit of truth, and if we're not actively trying to recognize and grow that our understanding of that, it will it will turn on us because we will be simultaneously denying other truths at the same time. We will be denying our own fragility. We will be denying our own, you know, sometimes just the simple fact of somebody being stubborn enough to never admit that they're wrong, to never admit that there's, that it's even possible that they could be wrong. But you, you put faith and power in the hands of somebody who's unwilling to admit they're wrong. And you've got a dangerous human being. You have a dangerous person because they are not going to listen to any reason. They're not going to even take a step back and go, you know what? I've read that scripture for 20 years. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But the people that really are are powerful to be around and hopeful and inspiring to be around are those people who carry the same degree of grace and humility with them as they do knowledge and understanding. Sure. And and when you get to like, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, Two thoughts. One, you were talking about, you were using the language. I, I said the sword, but you're talking about this holding this sort of power. And it, I'm going to plug us right here. The fear of God, right? Like that's it. Right. It's, right. It's, right. You have a powerful thing. You have a sword. You, you need to fear that sword and you need to fear how well or poorly you use it in the world. Yes. But yes. you know, I, I despise cross stitch theology, but I'm going to use it right here. What it makes me think my, my germ of an idea that's led to this strain of the conversation 
is the, the old, the old adage, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. And which right, is, right. is a stupid phrase, but I think <laughs> is very applicable here because that's what I think, you know, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Like you can't be heavenly minded. Mm, let me figure out how to phrase this correctly. To be too heavenly minded negates being salt of the earth. I think like those two things. Mm, here are the nuance I'm trying to impose there. But the point I'm trying to make is like, sure, sure. There are people. Carrie White's mother is a fictional character. Yes. But everyone who probably watches this movie will resonate and think about some real person that they've known or are aware of. Right. Yes. It was these, like this. Yes. These people who you're, you are not present in a way like you're defeating faith. You're drowning right. faith because real faith would say compassion, real faith. I think, you know, call me crazy, but real faith would say kindness. Real faith would say, this is your daughter who holy cow is just needing you mm -hmm. is not needing to be berated is not needing to be locked away. Like it's, it, it is, it is the witch parents all over. When you fear yeah. everything, you have faith in nothing. Like, right, right. you know, she has something, but it's psychosis. Like you said, it's neurosis, yeah. it's pathology, it's previous abuse manifest as faith, quote unquote. Right. Um, right. Anyway, that's my, well, <laughs> and, and, and possibly, uh, possibly as a final note, I'll mention one thing that I think, uh, will loosely connect the thread that we're scratching at right here. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. We don't say it every episode, but, you know, this show is about, if listeners are listening to this and they're saying like, wow, Reed and Nathan can't seem to come to a conclusion on this. We are interested in structure this show by exploring and not explaining. I'm not, I'm not necessarily unhappy if we walk away and don't come to a conclusion because we're exploring these ideas. These are, these right. ideas are bigger than us by their nature. But one thing that, that it did in this specific rereading and rewatching of the film, it was the first time that I had ever connected this this story, probably because I knew we were going to be talking about it in, in sort of a lens of Christianity. But it made me think of Samson. And listeners who don't necessarily recall the particulars of Samson, uh, Samson's own pride brought him down, but that's not the part that I'm scratching at. After he ultimately is wooed by Delilah, loses his strength, he is mocked, ridiculed, and abused by the Philistines, and they parade him out blind and broken and they parade him out uh as a as a an object of ridicule and as an object of scorn and in the story in the book of judges while they have paraded him out as an object of scorn and ridicule that is the moment that he asks god uh for one more act of strength and pulls the pillars down and pulls the temple down on their head and every single one of them that were mocking and ridiculing him uh were uh, were destroyed on that day. And, uh, you can see the parallels to, sure. the, to the story of Carrie, but connecting it back to kind of the things that we're talking about, about the, the, the power of faith. I think that it is really easy for us to believe that because we know the Bible and because we have a decent moral compass and because we have some sense of integrity or, or, um, self-righteousness or self-righteous understanding, I think it is very easy for us to look at people who do not have that same capacity with scorn and ridicule and to look down on them. And even if we would not necessarily treat them that way to, to process in our minds them as objects of, of less than. And I think and this is what I wrote down in relation to the Samson story, is that when we position other people, other human beings who God has fearfully and wonderfully made and who he loves every bit as much as he loves us, 
when we position them as objects of ridicule or scorn or see them as something less than a human being, we are sowing destruction for ourselves. Hmm. We're sowing seeds of something that will, could and often will quite literally come tumbling on our heads as it does for for the Philistines when when they're confronting Samson and as it does for the students at this high school when they laugh at at Carrie White when you cannot position yourself as somebody who can recognize the other as a person who has needs and yes maybe partially that need is to be corrected or to be instructed or to be rebuked i'm not saying we can never rebuke anybody but I think it's important that we not see them as less than. And I think it's important that we not see them as someone who is not in receipt of God's love and not in receipt of God's attention. Because I just think that that is categorically against what we are called to be in the world, if that, if that makes sense. And I think we will sow the wind and reap the whirlwind of destruction upon ourselves if we pursue that course of action continually. And that's all I got to say about that. (laughs) Well, I think I think it's just worth you know giving a moment of silence for old Danny Zuko. He's got to go find another high school. You know? <laughs> I mean, the poor kid. He just he just wants an education. Well, welcome back, Cotter. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, um, well, uh, we we hope that you've enjoyed this oversized number one, if new number one. If you've edition. made it this far. Uh, yeah, which we hope you have. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing, as Nathan said, about every 25 episodes or so, we're going to be focusing in on a work of one of our beloved authors, Stephen King, and unpacking it in, a, in an oversized episode kind of way. So, But as we always say, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. And uh, we hope that you'll continue this conversation with us about any of the things that we've been talking about, any of the themes or about Carrie the novel, Carrie the movie, any of the movie versions. Um, or even some of the stuff that we went or through like at the, the top of the, you know, the Carrie and Sex in the City series, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Grease. If you want to talk about Grease. Sure. All right, Dale. My wife. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but seriously, you can reach out to us in a variety of ways. You can, um, follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. And, uh, you can also like us on Facebook. There's uh, a link to that through Twitter on our Facebook page. You can also go to morethanonelesson.com to view this this posting and comment on that. We have several listeners who have begun to do that, and we appreciate that very much. Um, you can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Ralph. There it is. If you want to, especially uh, if if you really want to get some good preaching over the past few days, just go ahead and follow at the Nathan Rouse in my oh, opinion. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. I can't um, tell if you're being sarcastic or not, but I think I appreciate it. I'm not being sarcastic at all. So we, uh, we, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode, sincerely. Next week, we usually tell you to check social media to see what we're talking about next week, but I'm going to briefly tell you right now because... Uh, we didn't mention this at the top of the show with intention. Um, sadly, on uh, January 12th, we lost uh, somebody that was uh, very special to me, the writer William Peter Blatty, um, who wrote The Exorcist, the original novel, and the, the Academy Award-winning screenplay. So uh, next week, we are going to be f- tackling The Exorcist. We're as a tribute to him and uh, kind of as a to, to landmark our 
standard episode number 25, we are going to be diving into The Exorcist, the scariest film and of as, all time. And uh, as Father, Father Damien knows, you should never try to tackle The Exorcist. That's true. That's true, because it, it won't go well for you. No, but, um, no it won't. But sincerely, we, we hope you've enjoyed this, and we will look forward to seeing you guys next week. Nathan, thank you so much for, as always, having this conversation with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, my good friend. We'll see you next week, guys. And uh, so the story grew a little bit, and, and I said to Tabby when she fished it out, this is longer than the word requirements of any of the men's magazines that I was selling to. And she said, do it anyway. Uh, she, was, she was good that way. She's a lot braver than I was. And uh, so I did it, and um, it sold as a novel. It's a skinny little thing, but it, it, <laughs> it made me what I am today. <laughs>